series of sermons from the book of Job, which could be the oldest book really in the Bible. Job is a unique character. Now, there could be many, many messages preached from Job, but I have tried to lift out what I believe to be the important subjects, and we're going to spend eight weeks in this book. We begin with verse 16 as our background today, which reads, While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. The important phrase in verse 16 is, The fire of God is fallen from heaven. Job and affliction have long been associated together. Next to Jesus, whom we know as the man of sorrows, he was the most afflicted of God's servants in all the Bible. The principle of substitution explains the sufferings of Jesus. He suffered for us, the innocent for the guilty. But it is difficult to account for the afflictions of Job. And there are many who are today speaking about a gospel of prosperity, a gospel which says you never confess sickness, you never confess affliction. It's kind of like mind science, like the mind science person who died and went to hell, and he said, I'm not here and it's not hot. But we cannot get away from what this book talks about. And because this book is the inspired word of God, we need to examine it carefully and determine what God's purpose is in affliction, because here was one of his servants who was very grossly afflicted. Job's history is not linked with the people of God, with Israel. There's no association or really with anything else. It seems to say to us that as a result of the fall and the curse placed upon creation, affliction is the common lot of mankind. It boils down to this. If you hang around long enough, you'll be involved. You're not going to get away from it. It's the lot of mankind. It's going to befall any of us somewhere along the way. That seems to be the overriding theme of the book of Job. In the New Testament, the book of Acts, chapter 14, Paul was stoned at Lystra and left for dead. You remember the disciples gathered around him and prayed, and he was raised up. Miraculously so, and immediately continued on his journey preaching the gospel. He and others went to Derby. Then they came back to Lystra, where he had been stoned, then to Iconium, and then to Antioch. And Acts 14.22 then says this, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Now, some would like to take that last phrase out, through much tribulation, we will come into the kingdom of God. But it's there, and it's inspired. And the disciples were experiencing it. They were being afflicted, persecuted. And Paul 
records for all of us in his missionary journeys how that they were through tribulation and affliction required to minister to the people wherever they went. This had been placed upon them by God himself. Why do good folks suffer? Why do the Pauls of history suffer? Why do good men like Job suffer who feared God and shunned evil? Affliction in one shape or another seems to be the special portion of God's people. Our text says that the fire of God is fallen. God is the author of the afflictions of his people. Satan couldn't make one move without God's approval. God is the author of the afflictions of his people. There is something about humanity which seems to demand trouble, which seems to demand heartache and tribulation in order to bring the soul into maturity and to give that soul scope and depth. I wish it were some other way. I wish we could respond to sheer love and not have to go through the tribulation and the heartache, but it seems that we demand trouble in order to bring us to where we need to be. Look, for example, at the most precious things we have. The Bible, for one. How did we get the Bible? The Bible came through trouble and tribulation. That's what brought it to us. Men tried to destroy it, burn it, bury it, get rid of it, persecuted those who believed it and were writing it. But the Bible is here today because it came out of trouble and tribulation. People held on to it because others were trying to destroy it. What about the church? The church has progressed through the years because of suffering and death. Suffering and death literally produced the church. They were driven from Jerusalem, scattered by persecution, and preached the gospel in the whole world. It never could have happened without affliction. What about God's leaders? Hebrews 11 tells us they went through dens of lions. They were burned at the stake. They were stoned. They suffered all manner of persecution, all manner of affliction. God's servants have always been in that position. What about the Hebrew people themselves, the children of Israel? Tribulation again and again. And when they had to go through tribulation, they remembered the Lord when that trouble came. That's the record of the Old Testament. When the tribulation was there, they turned to the Lord. Read it for yourself in those Old Testament books. Psalm 137 pictures Israel hanging their harps on the willows of Babylon. And the Bible says in that psalm, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? They became more spiritually minded there in Babylon than unmolested in their beloved Jerusalem. They were more in tune with God in Babylon than they had been in Jerusalem. They hung their harps on the willows. In Babylon, they were cognizant of God. In Jerusalem, they forgot God. All progress comes by way of suffering. It takes tribulation to dig out harbors, to build skyscrapers, to construct roads to fling bridges across rolling rivers and tunnel through towering mountains 
the potter does not know whether a vessel is of outstanding quality until that vessel has gone through the fire. That's just the way it seems to be in this world of ours. How can you know whether a life is worthy to endure until that life has been put through the fire? You cannot know it. So we come to two important points from Job 1 this morning. And if you're writing the outline on the back of your bulletin, here it is. The design of God in the affliction of the wicked, first. And second, the design of God in afflicting his own people. Under point one, there will be two subpoints, and under point two, four subpoints to help you know where we're going. God has a design in affliction. The design of God in the affliction of the wicked, first of all. Now, you may not want me to say this, but I must because it's Bible. The design of God in the affliction of the wicked is to punish them. The wages of sin is death. Now, the world says, I can't accept that because he's a God of love. Well, love demands justice. If, as a parent, you tell your children, don't do this, and they go ahead and do it, and you let it go unpunished, you're going to have a rebel on your hands. God gives us guidelines. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. But if we violate those commandments and the laws of God, a God of love, a God of justice cannot sit back and say, well, I know you meant it for good. I'll forget it now. What kind of a world would this be? What kind of a God would we have? if he would just let it go unpunished. Hell is real. Hell is a place of punishment. It's a place of separation from God. And God's design in the affliction of the wicked is to punish them. He gave them his word. He gave them his son. But if they will not receive the message, there is no alternative because he's a God of justice. And justice must be meted out. But the second point of the design of God in afflicting the wicked to me is the one I enjoy so much. To arrest their attention. God brings affliction to the wicked to arrest their attention, to reveal the vanity of all things here. After I finished the early service this morning, a young lady came to me and said, Pastor, I know that's true. While you were away on vacation, I came forward and accepted the Lord. My husband died, and it was through his death that I became aware that God really cared about me and loved me and that I needed Jesus as my Savior, and I'm a Christian today because of that affliction. Now, that's hard for some people to receive and to accept, but I have seen it time and time again. On the plane coming back from Phoenix last evening, I was reading the story of Cho Yong Gi, the great pastor of the largest church in the world, Seoul, Korea. Over 100,000 members and growing at the rate of 3,000 a month. Dr. Cho Yong Gi was dying as a 19-year-old in Seoul, 
his chest filled with blood, spitting blood, passed out. The next thing he knew, a doctor was hovering over him and told him that he only had weeks to live. He had tuberculosis of both lungs. He went to his room, his family couldn't do anything for him. His Buddha couldn't do anything for him. He lay on his bed dying, 19 years of age. A young lady, high school girl, came into his room, gave him a Bible, prayed over him with tears, told him to read the Bible, and he would find the God of the Bible, the God who cared. Joe said, the imminence of my death had brought me to the realization that I needed something greater than a religion, greater than a philosophy, and even greater than sympathy for the trials of human existence. I needed someone who could share my struggles and sufferings, someone who could give me victory through reading the Bible. I discovered that someone was the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to him in his room, healed him completely of the tuberculosis, raised him up, and Cho Yong Gi is one of the greatest leaders in the world today because out of his affliction and near death, he found the reality of life. That is God's design in the affliction of the wicked, to bring them into a place of realization of need. What about the example of the prodigal in Luke 15? There are many lessons in the story of the prodigal son, but one you often miss is this one in our, our message today. The prodigal had everything he needed. He had wine, women, and song as long as he had money in his pocket, but he, he soon ran out of money, and he had no more of those pleasures, and in order to survive, he was driven to the pig pen. And there he was eating the husks, just like the pigs did eat. He was totally alone, totally depraved, totally at the end of everything. He had run his tether, and in that condition, he finally got to thinking about home. And in his thinking, out of his desperation, he said this, Why, the servants of my father are faring better than I am faring. At least they have food to eat. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up and go back home. Even if I have to be a servant, it's better than being here in the pig pen. That's one of the great stories or realizations of that passage. In the pig pen, in the horror of his affliction, he got up and went back where he had come from, and there was the father with his arms outstretched, ready to receive him. And he ate at the father's table, not as a servant, but as a son. That's where God wants all of us, to eat at his table, to be with him, to love him and be loved by him. But in our arrogance and our selfishness, we run from him, and he brings the pressure to us. Oh, thank God he does that. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the design of God in the affliction of the wicked is to arrest their attention, to reveal the vanity of all things here so that we can set our eyes upon that which is eternal, that which lasts. And dear neighbor, if you're here this morning and you are feeling the pressure, come to Jesus. 
And if you're watching us by television or listening to us by radio, and the Spirit of God is bringing that affliction and bringing that pressure, come to Jesus. He loves you and you'll never be sorry. Secondly, the design of God in afflicting his own people. There are four things that we learn about affliction in regard to God's people. Number one is to try the genuineness of their faith. 1 Peter 1.7 says, The trial of your faith worketh. The trial of your faith. To prove the genuineness of your faith. In all of Job's trials, his faith was found genuine. To the praise and honor of God, Job never does anything in the whole book inconsistent with his being a child of God. Isn't that something? He never curses God, never says anything inconsistent with his being a child of God. When some get put into the fire of affliction, they prove themselves to be hypocrites. They really weren't all that tuned in to the will of God and the purpose of God, and God has to know that. And so through the fire of affliction we go. The critical period following the affliction of conviction, and by the way, there is an affliction of conviction. It's not easy to come to Jesus for a lot of people. It's humbling. You have to let go. You have to stop struggling. There is a conviction there that I would call the affliction of conviction. But following that, the critical period is when one faces his old life candidly and dares to break with it completely to prove the genuineness of the faith and of the experience he's had. When you go back to the office and have to face the people there, back to the shop, back to the friends, back to the home where someone will not understand the ridicule of friends, the ridicule of associates, and even sometimes of loved ones. That is the design of God in afflicting his people to try the genuineness of the faith so that we will be ready when Jesus comes, that we will know we belong to him and we'll be able to turn from the things we once depended on and turn completely to him, as Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind. I press toward the mark. I'm a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And dear friend, you have to do that. You can't continue in your old ways. You cannot do the things that once you did to bring pleasure to your life. Jesus Christ, one by one, will put his finger on them. And through the affliction of conviction, you will have to drop those and move closer to the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't fight it. Move that way. It takes stress and strain to make a good Christian, just like it takes stress and strain to make a good preacher. I didn't just walk out of the halls and classrooms of seminary onto this platform this morning to talk to you about affliction. For 24 years of full-time ministry, I've been going through the furnace of affliction. And I come to you out of the university of hard knocks to talk to you about Job's experience, because I know it's true. 
Hundreds begin a ministry, but only dozens endure. Hundreds arise with shining face to deliver their first message, but only dozens are willing to continue on through the criticism, through the disillusionment, through the suffering of being misunderstood. There must be that heavenly must upon the man of God or he quits. A friend said to me some time ago, I can't stand the pettiness of the people. I can't stand the irregularity of attendance. I can't stand the irregularity of giving, the irregularity of life. I'm going to quit it. And he did. But through the years I have found that that time of affliction has been the growing time, the strengthening time, the refining time, so that I can stand here and say to you today out of the conviction of my own heart with a voice of authority, God allows it to come to prove the genuineness of our faith. And I can say God was God yesterday, God is God today, and God will be God tomorrow. He'll never forsake you. He will always be God. And He will bring us along as the genuineness of our faith is proven in the fires of affliction. Great athletes are those that suffered through. And great Christians are those that suffer through. Secondly, the design of God in afflicting his own people is to discover the purity and the sanctity of life. Through the furnace to make us holy and spiritually minded, we come to make us seek those things which are above. The young convert often looks around in a church and becomes disheartened by the apparent lag between the ideal of Christianity and the actual experiences of Christians he sees. That's why we're to keep our eyes vertically centered, not horizontally centered. Many disillusioned turn back to the old life and blame it on the Christian. When the test could have proven the purity and sanctity of an experience with God, not an experience with man. You see, it is an experience with God. And the scripture cries out for all of us to hear today, be not weary in well-doing. Don't get weary when you see inconsistencies. Look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. He endured, so can you. He saw inconsistencies. There were inconsistencies in his disciples. Thomas doubted him. Peter cursed him. But Jesus didn't throw up his hands in despair and say it'll never work. He knew it would work. And even Jesus went through the fire of affliction to purify and to sanctify his own life. He had to go through the wilderness to prove he could do it and conquer temptation and conquer the devil. And no matter what others were doing, he was going to serve the Father. That's why the affliction for the people of God to prove you're not serving me or serving the deacons or serving somebody else. You're serving God and God alone. And though there may be inconsistencies and things you don't understand, your eyes are on him and he will never fail you. He will never let you down. 
You can prove the purity and the sanctity of your life through the affliction of the inconsistencies of others. Thirdly, the design of God in afflicting his own people is to bring into existence the graces of the Spirit in our lives. The tendency for us is to sloth and slumber, laziness and sleep. Romans 5.3 says, we glory in tribulation. That's really some statement, isn't it? We glory in tribulation. Romans 8.35, shall tribulation separate us from Christ? The answer is no, nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 12.12, 12, be patient in tribulation. 2 Corinthians 7, 4, be joyful in tribulation. Oh, how we fight that. And the capstone to me is Romans 5, 3, where it says, tribulation worketh patience. You'll learn when standing in the midst of the fiery furnace. Tribulation worketh patience. What is the biggest lack of any of us in this place today? It's patience. We want everything right now, if not yesterday. And the Holy Spirit says, I want you to grow in the grace of myself. I want you to learn patience. And so you're going to go through the fire. You're going to be joyful in tribulation. You're going to glory in tribulation. Tribulation shall not separate you from Christ. You will find patience in the tribulation. Lessons are there that can never be learned in any other way. The three Hebrew children in Daniel 3 were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Heated seven times its normal heat. It was so hot it slew the soldiers that threw them in. During the night, the king couldn't sleep. He came and looked through the window and his eyes bugged out and he cried, How many did we put in here? His servants thought he'd been drinking before he went to bed and said, well, King, you know we put three in there. He said, that's what I thought, but I see four in there, and the fourth is like unto the Son of Man, not the Son of God, the Son of Man, which means he walks in shoe leather. He is where we are. And those three Hebrews were better followers of God after that ordeal. I can guarantee you that when they experience the very presence of the Lord in that fire. The graces of the Spirit grew in them as they recognized the power of God to keep them through the adversity and the struggle. Some people say when I got saved, I thought things would get easier. It got seven times harder. Well, that's because the furnace gets heated seven times harder when you determine to serve God. It's just that way. The devil throws in more coal. He stokes up the fire. Are you going to give up? Or are you going to let the graces of the Spirit develop in your life like in the three Hebrew children who became better because of the furnace? Moses became a servant after being driven from Pharaoh's court. He had to get out of the plenty of Pharaoh's court in order to become the great leader of Israel, and he went to the backside of a desert. He had to get out of the court in order for that to happen. I was thinking of the Good Samaritan the other day. I wonder if the Good Samaritan was good 
because he had suffered some painful experience once himself. That's usually the way it is. We are more sympathetic when we've gone through the fire than before. The person who has suffered a death in the family is more understanding of someone else who suffers the same. The good Samaritan was good because he had gone through a similar experience and he'd been over and helped the man put oil on his wounds, took him to an inn, paid the bill because the graces of the Spirit grew in him out of the affliction of his own life, and yet we fight it. We say, no, God, no, God, no, God, and God says, it has to be, it has to be, it has to be. There are graces that must come in you, and this is the only way you can experience them. Relax. Number four, God allows affliction in order to manifest his own glorious attributes. And I love this point. God has a purpose in everything he does. Sometimes I get the feeling that people feel God is playing a little checker game and he moves the checker here and he moves it there to see how things will work out. Have you ever gone into one of these restaurants and they've had these little games sitting there, it's a little triangle-like thing, and there are golf tees stuck over all over on these holes and they leave one hole empty and you're supposed to take all of those off of there, jumping just one, and leave one, only one, on the board. That thing will drive you crazy. I've done it two times, and you know, both times I went back and started over and couldn't do it again, couldn't remember how I did it. I think some people feel that's the way God does. He moves this one here and he moves that one. They're trying to figure out the best thing to do. God has a purpose in everything he does. He is the Almighty. In Acts 9, 3, they said to Jesus, why did this man, or why was he born blind? And who did sin? He or his parents? And Jesus said, neither, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. That was the reason for the affliction that God would get the glory through the healing of his blindness. And in this book we're studying now, the latter end of Job was greater than the for former. The affliction ministers to your happiness. If you hang on, God will get the glory and you will reap the benefit. God allows affliction in order to manifest his own glorious attributes. Paul and Silas were delivered in God's way. They didn't complain in the prison. They didn't try to get away from the lashes on the back or the prison cell. They submitted to God. God shook the prison, set them free at midnight, gave them many converts, and a church was established in that city of Philippi because these brethren put themselves into the mighty hands of God and wanted God to be glorified even in their affliction. God be manifest through this, and he was. And they were happier when it was all over than when they went in. So it was with Job. The latter end was greater than the former. Though God slay me, I will trust him, he said. He never once cursed God. He never once lifted his voice or his fist in the face of God. He wanted God to manifest his attributes through his affliction. And God did 
in the life of Job, so much so it confounded those around him. Hallelujah. You want God to get the glory through your life and go through the fire? Don't shun it. Don't try to run around it. Go through it. God will be there. Now I want to say something that's so very positive about this thing of affliction. The Christian never quite reaches the breaking point. The Christian never quite reaches the breaking point. That's what drives Satan buggy. God gave us a promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God will, with the temptation, make a way of escape. Hallelujah. God will, with the temptation, make a way of escape. When life is the cruelest, God is the nearest. That's the way he has designed it. Ira Stanfield, my daughter-in-law's father, wrote that beautiful song, You Can Have a Song in Your Heart in the Night. After every trial, after every mile, anyone can sing when the sun's shining bright, but you can have a song in your heart in the night. We shall not enter the kingdom on flowery beds of ease, we cannot live and serve in the kingdom without effort, but one day the word will be sounded in heaven, and this is what I'm looking forward to. This is what keeps me going. The Bible says these are they that came out of great tribulation and have made their robes white and washed in the blood of the Lamb. You might get a little bit flustered sometimes, but keep remembering the promise of God. These are they that came out of great tribulation. There is a day of reward. Right now in our city, there is being shown the film Johnny, the life story of this lovely young lady who, when 17, dove off a dock in the Chesapeake Bay, hit a rock, broke her neck, paralyzed her from the neck down. Bitterness. Emptiness. Asked for medicine to take her life. Couldn't stand it, but she's written another book now. Because Johnny has found in these 13 years of being paralyzed that bitterness can be turned to blessing. And she's a whole person because she's found the secret of the book of Job. Job chapter 1, sheep and servants are slain, camels and servants are slain, sons and daughters are slain. I mean, it hit every area of this man's life. It took his finances, his investments, his seven sons and three daughters. A wind came and hit four corners of the house and it fell. It must have been Christmas or something because they were all gathered in festivity a time of rejoicing, a time of happiness, and they all died, and the servants come. Your sheep are slain, your camels are slain, and those who cared for the sheep are dead. I'm the only one left. The camels are dead, the servants are slain. I'm the only one left. Finally, your children are dead, Job. What did Job do? He tore his mantle, shaved his head, and fell on the ground. That's normal. He mourned. 
But don't stop there. The next phrase says he worshipped. He worshipped. He worshipped. He felt God owed him nothing. Verse 21 expounds that. He said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You don't owe me anything, God. You gave me life. You gave me those camels, those sheep, those sons and daughters. If you want them, then you have them. You don't owe me anything. I will praise you anyway. Oh, that's, that's the way God intended it to be. God doesn't owe me anything. But He blesses me nonetheless. But He owes none of us anything, really. He's been so good to us already. Well, if everything is taken, and we say what He said, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and fall down and worship Him instead of saying, God, why, why, why? Where are you, God? Are you dead? Are you asleep? Don't be like the heathen. Be a believer that God does everything with a purpose and he'll never let you go. In verse 22, which is the last verse of the chapter, it says, in all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Now, if you could picture it like a play, that's the end of the first scene. The curtain comes down. The first scene is over. And the last phrase of the first act is, in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. And when the curtain comes down, you know what I see? Satan is completely defeated and confounded. He just can't believe it. Who wrote that script? Nobody can go through what he's gone through and sin not nor charge God foolishly. And yet he looks and the curtain has fallen and the scene is over and it's true. Satan is defeated and God is still on the throne of Job's heart. Hallelujah. God has allowed the hedge about Job to be broken through. The garden of his life is turned into a desert, yet the good man does not renounce God. Still trusting. The inward strength of God enables us to stand like the sturdy oak in the sudden swirl of calamity. And that's what we've come to church for today, to find the strength of God inside of us so that when the wind of calamity blows, we'll be like that oak with its branches reaching to the stars, firm in the wind, firm in the rain, firm in the storm, the oak standing there saying, pour it on, pour it on, my roots go way down into the ground, pour it on, wind, pour it on, storm, I can take it because I'm rooted and I'm grounded in this earth. That's what we've come to church to say to the devil today. Pour it on. I am rooted and I'm grounded in God. Pour it on. He, the God of heaven, will not allow me to be tested or tempted above what I am able to bear, but will with the temptation, but will with the affliction make a way of escape. That's the God I know. 
And that's the God who's led me through these years to stand here with authority in my voice and say to you, He's your God too. And He will bring it through. Now let's pray. Every sinner in this audience and every sinner watching by television, listening by radio, the pressure comes to bring you to God, not to drive you away from Him or to send you to hell, but to bring you to God. Come to Jesus. And Christian friend, God works through affliction. Look up to him today. Put your trust in him. Love him with all of your heart. And you'll never be confounded in this life or in the life to come. Now, who can I pray for? The Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a man in right standing with God avails much. Who can I pray for in this service today? I would like for you to raise a hand if you're here without Jesus Christ in your life and you want to become a Christian. You want to say by raising your hand, Pastor, the pressure has been applied. I feel God speaking to me and I want to come to him today. I want to receive him into my heart and into my life. I want to accept him as my own Lord and Master. Lift your hand right now all over the building. I want to pray for you. Just raise them up wherever you are. Don't be ashamed. Put them up and hold them there. God bless you over here. God bless you. Raise them up high. Then you can put them down again. I'm coming to Jesus today. I have felt the pressure. I know he's speaking to me. He doesn't want to destroy me. He wants to save me. I'm trusting Jesus. God bless you as you raise them up.